Warning, this podcast may be disturbing to some listeners. Due to the graphic nature, listener discretion is advised. Welcome from wherever you are. This is The Demon Inside with your host, John Venom. If you want to review a different episode of The Demon Inside, you can find them on Spotify or Anchor. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. A new episode will come out every Monday. And now, to our show. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. And welcome back to The Demon Inside. At first, Los Angeles police thought that the murder of a young woman last March was an isolated act of violence. But since then, they've come to believe it was connected to a wide-ranging series of assaults by a killer who's become known as the Night Stalker, a killer who apparently struck again during the weekend. We have a report from Nadine Berger. Police today continue to search for any clues in the near-fatal shooting of 29-year-old William Carnes and the rape of his girlfriend. They're apparently the latest victims of the Night Stalker, thought to be responsible now for 34 brutal attacks, 14 of them fatal. These serial killings, once confined to the near Los Angeles area, are now spread over 500 miles from San Francisco to Orange County. Just as before, the assailant entered a house in a quiet middle-class neighborhood in the pre-dawn hours on Sunday through an unlocked window and attacked the couple while they slept. Neighbors are terrified. Guy just sleep with my hand on my, right by my bed and a sawed-off shotgun, <laughs> which I always have. I see. Why is that? Because if anybody comes in my house, they're not leaving. The killer who attacks randomly is described as white, 25 to 30 years old, with a predominant feature of badly stained teeth. So 5,000 flyers have been distributed to Los Angeles dentists asking for help with identification. And last week, San Francisco Mayor Dianne Feinstein announced ballistic tests have definitely linked the murder of a man there to the Night Stalker. But release of that information has outraged a Los Angeles sheriff frustrated by the difficulty of tracking a random murderer. It places this community in jeopardy because it impedes our ability, our ability to go forward fully with the uh, investigation. There's a total of $35,000 in rewards has been offered, including today a $16 donation from this group of concerned school children. Today, the search for California's Night Stalker continues, and many residents sleep with their doors and windows bolted tight, despite 100-degree temperatures. Hello, my Demon Insiders, and welcome back to this episode of The Demon Inside. Today, we are going to be talking about Richard Ramirez. In 1983, there were five serial killers at large in Los Angeles. The most terrifying one was the Night Stalker. His M.O. was to invade homes in the middle of the night and leave dead bodies and blood all over the place when he left. He was responsible for the deaths of at least 16 people. As is so common with serial killers, the extent of the danger was not known in the beginning. 
For a long time, Ramirez's first murder was believed to have taken place on June 28, 1984. It was then that he killed 79-year-old Jenny Vimkow. Not only did Ramirez stab and sexually assault his victim, he also slashed her throat so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. But decades after Ramirez was arrested in 1985, he was also linked by DNA evidence to the murder of nine-year-old girl, which took place on April 10, 1984, months before the Vincal murder. So that may well have been his first killing. On March 17, 1985, Ramirez's murder spree began. He assaulted Maria Hernandez in her home. Though Hernandez managed to escape, her roommate, Del Okazaki, Okazaki, was not so lucky. That evening, Okazaki became another one of Ramirez's murder victims. But Ramirez still wasn't done. Later that same night, he shot and killed another victim, Sai Lian Yu. A little over a week later, Ramirez murdered 64-year-old Vincent Cesara and his 44-year-old wife, Maxine. Secondly, it was then that Ramirez began to establish his signature attack style, shoot and kill the husband, then assault and stab the wife. But his murder of Maxine was especially ghastly as he gouged her out her eyes. But something good for the police came out of this spree. Hernandez, who survived, was able to provide a description of the killer. She described him as having long, gaunt face, black stringy hair, and white spaced teeth that were brown and rotted out, which ultimately would be traced to the killer's subsetting on candy. The police were still playing their cards close to the vest, not saying whether the murders were related. Things got weirder when the Night Stalker invaded the home of Vincent and his wife, Maxine. On March 27th, Vincent was pummeled to death and his wife stabbed to death, but the killer also cut out the eyes of the woman and left with them. Next, William Doy of Monterey Park was shot in the head, but his dying action of calling the police saved his wife. Over the summer, the Night Stalker killed eight more people of varying ages. So during this time, Los Angeles was in a constant state of fear. And this is what Richard wanted. This was a different kind of serial killer. He was killing men, women, children, female, male. He was just killing people at random. He didn't care who he killed, as long as it spread fear throughout California. The mayor of San Francisco, against the advice of the police in L.A. and against her own police chief, decided to talk about the case and all the evidence that they had. She talked about the unique shoes that the nice stalker had because they had prints from a lot of the crime scenes. And she talked about the uh, gun that he had. But after Richard heard about this on the radio or TV, he ended up throwing everything that he had over the uh, Golden Gate Bridge and into the water. While this was happening in San Francisco, LA detectives found fingerprints in one of the stolen cars that Richard had used. He would always 
clean off all his evidence, clean off all his fingerprints. The only thing that he missed was a rearview mirror. And the police ended up looking it up and finding out that the prints belonged to Richard Ramirez. So here's where it gets kind of interesting is that Richard Ramirez at that time left from L.A. and went to El Paso to visit family. When he was coming back, he actually passed the police lines that were looking for him. They figured that they had put his picture in the newspaper and once he would have seen this, he would have been trying to leave the city. The police had blocked all the train stations, the uh, bus depots, and the airport. But in reality, he was actually coming back into the city from El Paso, and he didn't even know about the news until he got back to his neighborhood. So in East Los Angeles, where he was identified by Hispanic locos as he tried to steal a car, and was run down and half beaten to death before police. So when the police picked him up, this whole neighborhood had come out and started beating him. Take a listen. The guy came at me with a, a piece of iron bar and he hit me once over the head. I turned around and he swung it again and he hit me on the wrist. And at that point, I couldn't run anymore. I sat down to take a breather, and I saw the sheriff's patrol car coming down the street, and I knew that, you know, my life was over. But Richard Ramirez wasn't born this way. He was actually turned into this Night Stalker. He wanted to be somebody of importance, and he wanted to go against his family, his mother, his father, their religion. And this is what he became due to that. Because most serial killers usually start at a young age by killing like innocent animals or wetting the bed or starting fires. Richard didn't do any of this. Richard didn't have any of these because he really wasn't a serial killer, but he was a soldier of the devil. He was a soldier of Satan. He wanted to prove himself, and that's what he desired. There are desires, whereas if, where if I didn't give in to them, I would be crushed by them. I believe in the, in the evil in human nature. This is a wicked, wicked world, and uh, in a wicked world, you wicked people are born. I'm not going to blame society, my race, or people, or anything. Uh, it is up to the individual like myself to, to keep on knocking on, on whatever door they want to get into. As far as Satan is concerned, I, I believe uh, in a malevolent being. Uh, his description eludes me, but I, I have felt powers that are evil. I don't care about myself, really. You know, I don't care about what happens to me. I never did, really. So I'm not saying that Richard Ramirez was not a bad guy. If anything, I'm saying this guy was worse than any serial killer that has ever been before him, or after, for that matter. 
This guy wanted to be a demon. And when you want to be something as bad as Richard Ramirez did, you put your whole life, soul, and everything into it. There is no sense of humanity in you anymore because you've chosen to be a demon. In his mind, he was already favored with Satan. And when Richard Ramirez would go out and do these crimes, he would do it listening to music from ACDC called The Night Prowler. Now, of course, ACDC didn't write this for Richard Ramirez, but it was taken out of context by Richard Ramirez. And this was kind of Richard Ramirez's theme song that he would listen to. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. And welcome back to The Demon Inside. This was the uh, 1979 song by ACDC from the Highway to Hell album called Night Prowler. This was the song that Richard Ramirez was listening to before he would go and kill. So I don't know if people have heard this song, but I'm going to go ahead and play it uh, at the end of this episode if you'd like to listen to it. It's there. If not, don't worry about it. But Richard Ramirez would listen to the song called The Night Prowler, and then he would get up and go and have that song in his head because this was his song. This got him to the point where he was ready to go kill somebody. So why was Richard like this? Why did he become somebody that wanted to be a soldier for Satan. So you have to go back all the way to when Richard was a child. Richard was born February 29, 1960, and he was the youngest of four children. He had a brother named Reuben, Joseph, and Robert, 
and his sister's name was Ruth. His father, Julian, who was an ex-cop from Juarez in Mexico, uh, came to El Paso and worked as a laborer for the Santa Fe Railroad. Mercedes, his mother, worked at a boot factory where she would often have to work and breathe in dangerous chemicals all day long while she was pregnant with Richard. This caused her to have many difficulties. She frequently had to get hormone injections because her body was rejecting the child, was rejecting Richard. Nevertheless, Mercedes was able to give birth to Richard, and Richard was a good baby. He didn't cry much, ate and slept well. That's what Ruth said, his sister. He was particularly fond of her younger brother. She was. Ruth was particularly fond of her younger brother and would often dress him up and play with him. She considered him, and I quote, little doll, end quote. Because her older brothers were roughhouse. They would roughhouse. They were guys. And they all had short tempers like their father. So the father had a temper on him to the point where he would beat the kids. But before he started to do that, he really tried to not hit the kids. And there were stories about the father where he would hit himself uh, in the head with a hammer or hit himself against his head against the wall. Richard would later go on and do this sometimes in his prison cell. Eventually, that would pass, and um, he would start hitting the children. And the only reason I bring this up is because there was rumors that the dad was beating the kids so bad that he ended up giving Richard, like, brain damage. But this is what really happened to Richard with his head. When Richard was two years old, he was nearly killed by a dresser that fell on his head. And he was trying to climb up the dresser to turn on a radio, and the babysitter wasn't paying attention to him. And when the dresser fell with Richard, it hit him, and he had to get 30 stitches. And he also had a concussion. This wasn't the only injury that Richard had as a child. He was also five when he went to a local park with his sister, and she was on a swing, and he went running to her, and she couldn't stop, and she ended up hitting him, and he fell down, hit his head, and went unconscious. So a year later, Richard began to have epileptic seizures and was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. And he continued to have seizures seizures until his early teens. And being a teenager and having seizures whenever it happened, I'm sure that people would freak out. And when he would come back, he would freak out. So he always wanted to spend more time alone. Now, his mother, Mercedes, was a very Catholic woman. She was a very religious woman. And she would probably go to church, if not every day, every other day. Uh, And the kids were supposed to be believing in God and and doing the prayers and doing the rosary as Catholics. 
And I'm sure this was confusing to Richard because you would go to church, come home, and then get beat by the father. And, you know, this was a, a thing where Richard was so in fear that he would actually go and sleep at the Concordia Cemetery. Now, what's kind of unique or what's kind of weird is that at the Concordia Cemetery, people still to this day do satanic worshiping because of Richard. But with Richard uh, being forced probably to be an altar boy and to be part of the church, this changed his whole Catholicism uh, beliefs, which he resented his mom and dad and became a Satanist. Becoming a Satanist, he was thinking that, hey, look at where is God? Why hasn't God been protecting me or my siblings from, you know, my dad? Or why has God given me these seizures? And he converted his life. And as he got older with Satanism, he actually stopped his seizures. And feeling empowered by Satanism, by feeling empowered by the stigma of what Satanism is, uh, at, at that time also listening to rock music and smoking weed at the age of 13, but none of this would measure up to what his cousin did to him. His cousin Mike, or Miguel, this guy, to me, had a demon inside of him. And I am seriously trying to find more information about Miguel. And uh, it's kind of hard because he was a special forces uh, soldier in the army. And he did a lot of missions that are classified. But he would show Richard how to sneak into houses, how to be quiet, how to kill people, how to, you know, it was always about raping women. And he would show pictures to Richard, who was 12, 13 years old. Uh, he would show him Polaroids of all the people he had killed in Vietnam. And Richard, being so young and impressionable, admired him. And this was one of the reasons that Richard became who he became. He admired Mike. He wanted that power that Mike had. Mike told him that killing people made him feel like a god. And to Richard, that's what Richard wanted. And if you really think about it, Mike was a hero in the war for killing and raping people. So why wouldn't Richard want to do the same thing as a soldier for Satan? Yes, I look up to him. Because when you're at that age, you know, superheroes, war heroes are like in comic books, TV. This vicious, mean, strong, you know. He used to say, there's no thrill like a good kill. <laughs> and uh, 
feast on bones. Thank you for listening to The Demon Inside with Richard Ramirez. Next week will be the continuation of Richard Ramirez. I hope you enjoyed the show. And again, if you like this episode, please subscribe. Hit like on all my Facebook accounts, uh, Instagram, uh, Twitter, and so forth. You can listen to this podcast on any outlet. And if you can't find it, send me an email and uh, at thedemoninsidepodcast at gmail.com. And I'll go ahead and send you a link so that you can hear these podcasts. But uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. Please be careful with the demons out there. And I will talk to you next week. Don't forget to subscribe to The Demon Inside on Spotify, Anchor, or any other podcast directory or through our website, anchor.fm backslash The Demon Inside. A new episode of The Demon Inside comes out each Monday. Let us know what you think and join the conversation on our Demon Inside Facebook page and on Instagram. We thank you for listening and hope you'll join me next Monday for a new Demon Inside. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends. I'm John Venom. We'll see you next time. If I don't get possessed. The Demon Inside was created and written by James Porter. It's a production of Venomous Entertainment. Theme music, Demon Inside, is on the album Conjure One by Reese Fulber. Background music was created by Lucas King.
Şazma. Nanum, nanum.